Welcome to the Parish Art Museum podcast, where we aspire to provide opportunities for learning, sharing, and celebrating the many innovative and pioneering artists who call the East End home. Come back each week to find new and impactful experiences in the arts. I'm the Lewis B. and Dorothy Cullman Chief Curator here at the Parish Art Museum. It's a great pleasure for me to welcome you this evening on behalf of our director, Terry Sultan, and our board of trustees who are thrilled that we've had such a wonderful reception for this glorious show. Avis Berman is an influential and delightful presence in the art world. Her lectures and writing contribute significantly to our appreciation and understanding of 20th century American art. She's the author of many books and articles, including Rebels on 8th Street, Juliana Force and the Whitney Museum of American Art, Edward Hopper's New York, and co-author of Catherine Koo's memoir, My Love Affair with Modern Art, behind the scenes with a legendary curator, to name just a few of her contributions. I uh, knew Avis's work long before I met Avis, but I had the happy uh, opportunity of working with her on the Glackens exhibition, which, as you may know, was it 2016? 15? <laughs> the years fly. But it was our wonderful summer show then. Uh, Glackens, of course, an artist who worked in Belport, as well as New York and other place, exotic places in Europe. And it was my pleasure, as I say, to work with Avis, who did an estimable job of her own lead essay. She's the author of the catalog. But also, you had how many contributing essayists? Seven? Eight, seven, seven, eight. <laughs> no. So, uh, as well as herding cats, you can herd uh, errant essayists as well and get those in. You did a brilliant job, not only on your curated, curation of the show, but on the catalog as well. It's a beautiful one. Without Amos Berman's contribution to the scholarship of American art, our understanding and appreciation would be greatly diminished. And her Writings have provided a wealth of information on our culture and the innovative and revolutionary presence of American art in the 20th century. Uh, she is currently at work, I'm sure probably on more than one project, but of special interest I know to us is she works with the Royal, the Royal Lichtenstein Foundation on the oral history project there, which has been extensive and going on since 2001 but also working on a biography of Roy, whom we call our own here on the East End, and working on that. So thank you all very much, and let's welcome Avis. Thank you, Alicia. And she, only she and Victor, they're her, the trusty AV guy, our techie guy, they know how much they have done for me, and I thank them. This hour really belongs to Helen Frankenthaler, another artist I admire very much. And along with Alicia, I really want to acknowledge the enormous help I received from the Helen Frankenthaler Foundation in putting this together, especially my colleagues, Elizabeth Smith, who was a co-curator of this show, Cecilia Barnett and Sarah Hogg, who were instrumental in locating all sorts of, some of these images and files and things that you'll see for me. So uh, before we start, I want to ask you to bear with me because I'm going to be trying something different in this lecture, and I hope that the technology for it won't be too cumbersome. Uh, as you'll hear, there will be two primary speakers today, me 
and Helen Frankenthaler. And she'll be chiming in at various intervals, commenting on her art and events in her life and explaining some of her ideas firsthand, as will friends and family members. So please be patient as we wait for her voice and maybe think about it as a, an art historical version of a Tony Bennett uh, duet. And also in these excerpts, uh, sometimes the sound quality is not so good because they were recorded, some of them 30 years ago. Now, I should also say that although I'll be touching on Frankenthaler's East End and Provincetown years, I won't be focusing exclusively on them because most of you have have already seen the exhibition, possibly read or looked at the catalog, and other speakers have come before me with a far greater arsenal of East End and Provincetown facts and memories and, and about the aesthetic climate, so I'll be doing some other things too. Uh, instead, I want to offer, for lack of a better term, a few counter-interpretations of Helen Frankenthaler. That is, one or two views and perspectives that don't fit so smoothly with the reigning perceptions of who she was, how she worked, and how she lived her life but they are views and perspectives that were revealed through first-hand accounts uh, by Frankenthaler herself and those who knew her. Helen Frankenthaler was always a phenomenon, and I'm often in awe of her. Like every young painter, she was influenced by other artists, but she did not emulate or follow them slavishly. She found her own way and painted pictures that made the first generation of the New York School sit up and take notice. And she didn't evolve quickly into a contemporary painter, quite the opposite, she was lightning quick. With pictures such as these, you see both the raw vitality of a young artist and the imprint of de Kooning and Gorky. And I also want you to look especially at this painting called Sightseers because you'll see how free and unsolemn and irreverent she was because first, here is her name. She wrote Helen in the middle. And also at the time, she was involved with Clement Greenberg in which she signaled by putting this little green bird up there. So uh, something that she could, you know, paint a picture and you know still have a little fun with it while you know she was serious but not solemn now then of course there was mountains and sea and more about that later so clearly from the age of 22 or 23 on, she more than held her own at the highest levels of the New York art world, among the likes of Pollock, de Kooning, Rothko, Klein, David Smith, Hans Hoffman, and Lee Krasner. Uh, the artist Alfred Leslie, uh, Helen's old friend and the lone survivor, he's 93, from her days at the Tibor Dinaj Gallery, where she showed from 1951 through 1958, commented on Frank Tuller's position even at the beginning of her career. Excerpt one, please. You made a particular kind of investment in self about where you're going and what you're doing and whether you declared your high seriousness, and whether when, as a young artist, you came into a community that may have hated your work, but the important thing was not what they thought of your work, but whether or not you were being acknowledged. And if you were acknowledged, means what it means. 
They say, you're a serious person. You may not be interested in what you're doing, but you're in the crowd. So she was always acknowledged from the very beginning, mm -hmm. despite anything that anyone might have said to the contrary. But unlike a great number of the first generation members of the New York School, Frankenthaler did not succumb to drink, despair, or self-destruction. She handled success rather than letting the beast destroy her. She sustained a career that any artist might envy, exhibiting in all the best museums in this country and abroad, while also reveling in a packed social and personal life filled with family and friends who cherished her. As Frank Stella has said, the richness and happiness and force in her life and in her making of art seemed kind of overwhelming. Frankenthaler had integrity too. She did not tailor her work to fit the fashions of the time. She evolved according to the dictates of her mind, hand, and arm, and the materials she used, not because she wished to be in step with a period style. Yet she was equally regular, rigorous in, t in attempting to control and sometimes over control the future. The primary motivation of an oral history project is to amplify, illuminate, and in consequence, correct the historical record. The endeavor is usually uh, deemed necessary because number one, often there are great batches of missing information about an artist's life and work that can only be learned through the testimony of eyewitnesses, which is related to reason number two. Artists, like the rest of us, construct their own myth. These myths tend to be upheld and enforced during an artist's lifetime, and what is counter to them tends to remain obscure. And there's a third reason, which is that of changing perspectives. What may not have been considered important when an artist lives looms much larger after death when a career is likely to be re-evaluated. And presumably, after an artist dies, not only do priorities shift, but the discourse is no longer so tightly controlled. Now, although I strongly believe in the concepts of decorum, uh, of the concept of decorum, and that the privacy of the living must be protected, I nonetheless side with Voltaire, who famously said, to the dead we owe only the truth. The Helen Frankenthaler Foundation, for which I've been conducting oral history since 2016, is accumulating and creating salient primary documents, such as oral histories, that will guide future critics, art historians, and other interpreters of Frankenthaler's art, and it encourages new inquiries. One enlightened decision was to do some things that Frankenthaler herself wouldn't have liked, but might ultimately benefit her artistic le uh, legacy. For example, she banished certain subjects and avenues of exploration from uh, discussion. For instance, it is natural in the interest of her own privacy that Frankenthaler announced that all questioning about her relationship with Clement Greenberg, which lasted from 1950 to 55, and her first husband, Robert Motherwell, to whom she was married from 1958 to 1971, was off limits. However, each man was a significant figure in uh, and of himself, as well as to her, and these relationships are part of the historical record. Uh, Frankenthaler also hated all inquiries about being a woman artist. But as I can tell you, after listening to many hours of her interviews, 
I'd be tired of it too because it was a question that was asked almost nearly every single time, incessantly, and most of the time the question was asked in the most simplistic manner without much thought behind it. Now that said, I believe that I don't think that she allowed herself to examine the larger issue that discrimination uh, against women artists was ingrained and systematic. Perhaps because uh, in large and you know important exhibitions, as the one woman who got chosen uh, to be in them, she probably thought she wouldn't stand to gain anything from it if there was an improvement from everyone else. In general, Frankenthaler presented an all-encompassing and often intimidating front of formality and sheer competence rather than risk being seen as the vulnerable and sometimes insecure being that she, like the rest of us, uh, was. I think uh, we can ascribe that to having her guard up, to being an artist, a woman who was traveling in the uppermost artistic circles in New York's cultural life, and she didn't want to lose ground by being seen as weak, indecisive, or vulnerable in any way. But something was lost. She could be a bright spirit of great fun and humor whom her friends adored, but that almost never comes across in any public situation. Now, the oral history is a tape-recorded memoir in which the subject, the interviewee, converses at length with, one hopes, a well-informed interviewer. Such recordings uh, elicit recollections, impressions, and insights from persons who would not customarily volunteer them. When well done, it fulfills what no less a figure than George Kennan defined as history. And history, Kennan said, is not what happened. History is what it felt like to be there when it happened. So I'd like to validate Kennan's point with an example of a small incident from Frankenthaler's life made vivid and dramatic by a gifted raconteur. She had several nieces and nephews, and as they grew to adulthood, they became, in essence, old enough for her to play with, and she cultivated warm, loving relationships with them. For instance, Frankenthaler was an opera goer, and her nephew, Fred Eisenman, had a passion for opera too, and later became one of the Met's uh, biggest supporters. So they occasionally went together. Now, in my research that I learned that Frankenthaler often, you know, that Frankenthaler attended one of Birgit Nilsson's farewell performances at the Met, which took place in October 1981. That in information was gleaned from primary documents, pleasant, unimpeachable, but ho-hum, who cares? But fortunately for us all, Fred Eisman took her to one of those performances, and the difference, the aliveness of the event is palpable. And here is his absolutely incandescent recollection and the conclusion he drew from it as he spoke in tribute to his aunt, and he shows us what it's like to be there. Excerpt two, please. When I was in my 20s, my girlfriend and I took Helen and my mother to hear Birgit Nilsson's farewell performance at the Met Opera at age 63, Nilsson's age 63, in Strauss's great opera, The Woman Without a Shadow. The curtain fell. The audience applauded wildly because the unbelievably youthful Nilsson had given a perfect performance at that age, and the audience was rapturous. And with the house lights on, confetti rained down past our box. 
flashing in the spotlights while the audience cheered and shouted bravo, while Nielsen took curtain call after curtain call and the flowers piled up on stage. After 20 minutes of this, Ellen had had enough. And she turned to me and she said, I'm in the wrong business. But then she added, with great seriousness and emphasis, because she'd been affected, she said, great art takes you out of yourself. And that is what it's about. Finding the work, the aria, the painting, the poem, better yet, creating it, that is bigger and more durable than ourselves. Helen, thank you. A cultural inheritance in the mind and the eye is infinitely divisible. It never depletes the inheritance, when, and it is never taxed. Use it well. well However direct and colorful it may be, the oral history is not an infallible research tool. Garbled facts, faulty memories, and retrospective self-aggrandizing can often raise more questions than they answer, and mix-ups and conflicting assertions can be confusing. One must never forget the Rashomon-like nature of individual memory. It's a given that oral history isn't a substitute for contemporaneous letters, journals, or business records. However, as the person responsible for conducting a projected 40 or so interviews on aspects of Frankenthaler's life and art, I found that if, even if interviews can't always clarify mysteries, they do offer striking details and often um, unknown and revelatory um, events and suggestive uh, implications that should help future scholars to establish a context and evolve a thesis. I don't know how else we would have learned of her reactions to memorable events, her reasons for doing things, her gift for friendship, or some of the less obvious influences shaping the drama of her life. The gathering of this sort of information reflects my own conviction, as well as that of the Frankenthaler Foundation, that art history goes beyond the trained aesthetic examination of the work in question. It must also account for conditions affecting the ways art is created and received. Indeed, most records by definition reveal more about external circumstances than an artist's themes or methods, and the oral history is no exception. Yet the more we know about the determinants of, a, of an artist's background, the better we can understand her work. As Helen's great pal David Smith once said, writing about artistic th uh, theory alone results in verbal sterility. Describing the life from which it sprang is history. So in the remainder of my talk, uh, based on interviews I've conducted for the Frankenthaler Foundation, as well as interviews with Frankenthaler herself done by others and in the Foundation's archives, I'd like you to experience what we heard and what we found out as we began to dig. In particular, you'll hear the artist's perceptions and rationales for doing things. But I'll also go a bit more into Frankenthaler's um, early life, just so you'll be able to understand how radical was the departure that she made for herself as well as for the world at large. I may not be so much dispelling myths, but offering corrective readings of history from those who told me what it was like to be there. In other words, primary firsthand counter-interpretations that may reposition Frankenthaler in enlightening ways. A native New Yorker, Helen Frankenthaler, was born on December 12, 
1928, the, the youngest of three daughters of, of Martha Lowenstein Frankenthaler and Judge Alfred Frankenthaler, a New York State Supreme Court Justice. The family was an upper cla middle class German Jewish family and the literature uh, typically talks of great wealth. There was no doubt that the Frankenthalers were privileged, comfortable, and socially connected. As a girl, Helen met people ranging from Sarah Delano Roosevelt, the president's mother, to Cary Grant, um, and she liked the good things in life and expected to have them. Yet, uh, Judge Frankenthaler had worked his way up from the Lower East Side where he was born and had a social conscience and a sense of altruism. The Frankenthalers weren't millionaires or multimillionaires on the grand scale like the Guggenheims, the Warburgs, the Rockefellers, or any other prominent New York family you might care to name, but they were certainly well-fixed and they valued education. All three uh, daughters went to first-rate colleges, Gloria to Mount Holyoke, Marjorie to Vassar, and Helen to Bennington, graduating in 1950. Helen Frankenthaler's affluent uh, background has bred tremendous condescension and resentment as if her success were inherently tainted or undeserved because she had it easy. Well, that's the conventional view. If you're rich, you can't be serious and you're not one of us, which was a canard that also plagued uh, Motherwell. The conventional view is a silly one. If you know your art history, you're aware that Manet, Degas, Cezanne, and Mary Cassatt, for example, came from wealth, and I never noticed that their art was demeaned on account of their financial resources. A more sophisticated counterinterpretation was argued by two witnesses I interviewed, both of whom characterized Helen's background as a burden in some respects. It was a world she had to escape, as stifling and parochial in its own way as the repressive old New York of Edith Wharton. It took guts to leave it, to shake it off. It was an enormous leap. Sybil Herzog, as she was then, a woman I talked with, went to school with Gloria and Marjorie Frankenthaler, and she remembers, quote, everybody had a parent who had a title, doctor, lawyer, tycoon. Everybody we knew went to college. It was all Ivy League, too. There was no junior college in Mississippi State for the Frankenthalers, or for me, or anyone else. When I asked her about a Jewish quota in Ivy League schools, she said she confirmed there was, but they never worried about it because in their crowd, they all had powerful friends and relatives who would make sure that they got in. This world was so sheltered and protected that it would have taken a powerful will on the part of a teenager to break away. And Sybil Herzog continued, we all had French governesses and English nannies. There was a certain protocol of being reared instead of being dragged up. I can assure you that as a girl, I or the Frankenthaler girls had never been south of 42nd Street, except maybe to 34th Street, to Best and Company and Altman's. So, to escape this gilded cloister, Helen had to really want something hard and want something different, which her years at the Progressive Dalton School may have incubated, and Bennington College would most certainly have hatched. When she returned home after Bennington in 1950, she moved downtown, much to the consternation of her mother, and she shared apartments with friends, though she never had to work. But it was the beginning of mucking in with the rest of other young artists living on a 
dollar or two a day. She was accepted by the first-rate Tibor Dinage Gallery and made friends with the rest of the artists in the stable, including Larry Rivers, Grace Hardigan, Harry Jackson, and Alfred Leslie, um, whom we hear again. Uh, excerpt three, please. She appeared to be a truthful person and had a sense of what other people's lives were like. And uh, this was really apparent in which in relation to the discomfort that she had with having as much money that she had and her sense of in being in a world where many of the people were broke all of the time and how to live amongst them and not be thrown by it. This was very, very hard on her and especially in relationship when she met Grace and I was through the panels. But Helen was very sensitive to the fact that she was able to move on. And when I met her mother and her sisters, it all became extremely clear about how she had been brought up. So when I say that Helen was extraordinary, she came from this situation and made this breakthrough in terms of recognition. But as I see it, carried this burden you know, of how to deal with it. I had an easier life as a child, as I see it, than Helen did. She had the power to be able to continue to do what she did and stick by her guns under all of the pressures that we were all under, whether or not we had an income or not that was male or female, money or no money. In the end, you either create a body of work, which is what she understood. She just was a marvelous artist, a marvelous person. Should be a great model for anyone, for people who come from an entitled background like her, can look to her to see an example. So that was the view of two contemporaries. Now, don't think I'm being stupidly romantic or naive. As Pearl Bailey once said, I've been rich and I've been poor, and rich is better. So, of course, Helen was fortunate and lucky, and no one should feel sorry for her. But perceptions of her, then, were conditioned by the milieu in which she wanted to be judged. And if she had had no talent, focus, curiosity, or discipline, no bank account would have helped her in the eyes of history. I'd also like to pose a counter-interpretation about a work of art that has attained mythic status, that is, mountains and sea, the Frankenthaler canvas that's become a part of the folklore of American art because it's been so influential. It's uh, been acclaimed as the springboard of color field painting, especially because it determined the paths of Kenneth Noland and Morris Lewis, who adopted Frankenthaler's technique. I want to look at Mountains and Sea as something to be positioned between an albatross and a leviathan, a most remarkable, scintillating, and brilliant albatross, but albatross nonetheless 
or as a Leviathan, a monster with a life of its own. Like her background, she couldn't get away from the picture, and people like me perpetuate the situation by irresistibly being drawn to discussing it. But in this case, I'm bringing it up mainly because with the important exception of the writings of John Elderfield, I think it's been discussed too narrowly and not enough contextually, especially in the way that Frankenthaler grew to regard it. Was it a lodestone or a load? For the bulk of the art conscious public and a number of art historians, Mountains and Sea is the only painting they know Frankenthaler ever did, and it's fueled an implication that she was a one-hit wonder, which she knew and resented when she wasn't resigned to it. The art historian Carl Bells, who organized the first show of uh, Frankenthaler's 1950s paintings, which took place at the Rose Art Museum at Brandeis in 1981, told me that she was adamantly against having mountains and sea in the show, whereas for him, that was the key painting he wanted above all else. She did not want that storied picture to over, overwhelm the rest of the paintings, both on the wall and in the writing about her work. And this is, Be this is Bell speaking. Excerpt four, please. On one occasion, she said, it's a wonderful picture, but it would be like having a show of Fabergé and putting the Hope Diamond in the middle of it. And when it came up a second time, she used equally forceful kinds of images to describe how it would be a sole magnet for the achievement of her first decade. It would limit her achievements in that regard. For mountains and sea, Frankenthaler drew in charcoal and then poured oil and enamel paint thinned with turpentine onto raw, unprimed, duck canvas, so the paint soaked into the canvas and married it rather than floating on top of it. Uh, Frankenthaler never pretended that she invented the soak staining technique, though that has become the myth, and she did make it her own. Uh, she was influenced by seeing uh, the 1951 memorial show of our shield Gorky at the Whitney Museum. Gorky didn't exactly stain, but as you can see, his oil technique looked like it because he washed loose films of paint over the canvas. Though Gorky first, through, excuse me, through Gorky first, and then Pollock, Helen learned to unleash the dynamism, the movement of paint through pouring, through using her wrist and arm, although she pushed the paint around a lot more than Pollock did once it hit the canvas, using sponges, squeegees, and brushes. I think it would be very it is illuminating to hear Frankenthaler look back on Pollock's impact on her, and when you hear this excerpt, you will hear um, music uh, playing in the background sometimes. Um, Next, uh, ex excerpt five, please. I think what he did was make me think, he's working on the floor. It belongs on the wall. You admire it and see it on the wall. You judge it on the wall. But you're making it literally from another perspective. I think uh, it stunned me. I knew there was something fantastic there and a message for me and a place for me to go. I used his freedom of scale and no limits and no boundaries, but using the materials and the methods I did, which were totally different from his, my paints were 
more apt to bleed into the canvas itself. I think part of every breakthrough is the result of methods and materials and the need and the luck of using them for the first time. You learn from the best of what came before you and then you do your own thing. Frankenthaler enlarged the potential of painterly means, searching for new ways for paint to be handled. Paint is a moving, living thing to her, an entity with which she has a dialogue or is something she's locked into combat with. Paint seems to roll and drift and flow across the canvas with unmistakable, easy inevitability. Another lesson that she learned from Pollock and the New York School is scale. Scale is understood as an independent force and an independent element. It's not just about the size. It explodes the conventions of boundaries. We should also keep in mind when attempting to demythologize mountains and sea is that at the time it was first seen by Frankenthaler and her friends, the picture was judged as, a ver as very successful because it unified medium and content in a striking new way, but it was not a work hailed as something outside the purview of her peer group's expectations. It never sold, and in an interview with some art students, perhaps to bring the, uh, the whole mythic thing down to earth, Frankenthaler was archly casual about it all. Excerpt six, please. This was, I guess, one of the very first pictures I painted on the floor on unsized, unprimed cotton duck and used a medium of, in this case, I did the lines in charcoal and the paint was too oil paints, enamel, and turpentine. I own it, and it's uh, on loan to the National Gallery in Washington, so it's on the wall sometimes. And I own it, really, because nobody ever wanted it, and by the time anybody wanted it, I thought maybe it was good and I ought to keep it myself. <laughs> <laughs> but for a hundred bucks in 1952, you could have had it. Uh, Frankenthaler's dry answer suggests that she doesn't want this painting to be, you know, the er moment, the great defining moment of her life. I mean, Mountains and Sea for Frankenthaler was like Citizen Kane for Orson Welles, which was done at about the same age. So how do you survive it, especially when the critics stamp you and the painting as a bridge between two movements star starring other artists rather than perhaps as your own opening salvo or extraordinarily graceful swan dive? How do you get people not to regard much of your later work as an afterthought or less than, which several critics implied? And oh, again, uh, Carl Bell's excerpt seven, please. When I wrote about the work, having studied the criticism that was written about it when it was first completed and exhibited, it seemed that she couldn't win for losing because they had Donald Judd writing about the new cool, minimal, detached, objective kind of art, minimal stuff. You had that on the one hand, 
and she wasn't intellectual enough, you know? And then, and you had the old Harold Rosenberg strength and muscle action painting on the other hand, and she wasn't muscular enough for that part of it. You see, so she couldn't win for losing, and she was losing both ways. So, but Frankenthaler more than survived mountains and seas. She kept experimenting and made many more memorable works of art, as you've seen in these galleries. Relatedly, Frankenthaler always maintained that mountains and sea didn't come out of nowhere. And here, in an interview, she reveals uh, uh, the picture's specific roots, its DNA, and a debt to Clement Greenberg for it. Excerpt eight, please. Mama has a 51 picture of mine that I made in New Jersey that is really a sketch for this, though I didn't know it at the time. And it looked so strange and puzzling and sort of ugly to me that while it was still wet and it was wintertime, I crumpled it into a ball and threw it in the fireplace. And Clem reached in and got it out, smoothed the whole thing out, and he said, no artist should ever tear up any of his work, ever. To this day, he says, don't tear it up, roll it up, look at it later. Maybe it's lousy, maybe it's great. Just honor your own work that much. And I said, but this one is a total loss. And when I look at it now in relation to this, it was just the shorthand, what this is. So it was coming out anyway. Frankenthaler's mantra was that her first rule was no rules. As a young painter, she didn't begin from a preordained idea. And other than the Provincetown series that you see in the galleries here, which is an anomaly. She normally didn't work in series, and she didn't develop a signature image she could start from and permute, as did her friend Ken Nolan, who made, for example, targets and chevrons that everyone would recognize. As John Russell observed, in art, Frankenthaler always maintained, quote, a policy of maximum risk. Every day she started from square one, and she depended on spontaneity, which was, of course, reinforced by years of work and seeing and training. As opposed to series, she would make clusters of paintings, in you, which you might see relationships um, among them, but they were never, from the outset, structured in the same way as the previous one or the one that would come after. She retested everything. Uh, Frankenthaler was, of course, an abstract painter. That is a painter who employs the techniques of abstraction. But um, especially in the early years, her sources are always connected with the recognizable, even though she has largely eliminated the recognizable from the canvas. The idea of the original object has an anchoring presence. It helps give her work substance and her ideas and emotions respond to it. In addition, going back to what I mentioned about Frankenthaler breaking free of her family background in the late 40s, we can see this being played out aesthetically through the evolution and jettisoning, jettisoning of recognizable imagery. 
Now, Woman on a Horse is a Bennington picture, a proper foray into cubism with the figure centered on the canvas, and obviously she's been looking at Picasso. Whereas Beach and Painted on 21st Street, and Beaches in the show are all overpaintings, responses to the work of the New York School that she was seeing all around her after she got back to New York. Yet, it's, these are uh, fashioned from the quotidian items in her own life. I don't normally list media in lecture images, but please take note of these. And I think that she says, in talking about Painted on 21st Street, that this is coffee. Uh, so, uh, and Frankenthaler confirms this in talking about Painted on 21st Street. Excerpt nine, please. It really represents a brief period when I was clearly freeing myself from the strict analytic cubist tradition and training I had and was opening up into a more New York school concept. My first studio in New York was on 21st Street, and I had that studio the winter I'd graduated from college, and I painted it there. Cold Water Flat. I shared it with Sonia Rudikoff, the writer, and we paid $14 a month for it. <laughs> and I think all those influences show in this picture, along with my own blossoming out I used a combination of things that I had learned from the analytic and later cubists. They used sand, coffee grounds. If you look at the upper right section, the morning coffee might be there. I added my own plaster of Paris combination and also used standard tube pigment oils and probably turpentine. Its initial impact is certainly an all-over white, but within that white, there are many different whites and treatment of whites in terms of impostos, reliefs, thinnesses, thicknesses. A Western Dream, like Mountains and Sea, is on unprimed canvas and thinly painted, and evokes, it evokes a desert landscape and weather conditions, but it's a suggestion, it's a hint, it's not anything too determined. Frankenthaler made associations with landscape, but in the words of the curator and critic, Jean Barrow, she often, quote, transforms the affinity with landscape without losing the benefit of it, end quote. And here are three important Frankenthaler paintings of the mid-50s. And Frankenthaler's comment about Eden, and in, in this she connects uh, the painting to landscape and outlines her improvisational approach. Uh, excerpt 10, please. I had it in my head, and yet I made it up as I went along. And the luck was knowing when to stop. In a sense, though it doesn't show, it was a play on the Garden of Eden, but I also had that sort of round target in the center, and in terms of its symmetry, the whole business of symmetry and ambiguity have always grabbed me someplace, so that out of the blue, I guess because I was thinking target, and so it went rather rapidly. 
the 100 appeared on the left, which is essentially just a straight line and two circles. And I thought, well, put one on the other side. The two poles are there. And I suppose if you stretched it, it has a landscaping, even that feeling of some sort. But the main thing was the drawing and the color, and drawing with color rather than with line, so that the circle, for example, is formed of different colors joined up that form a circle. And then I began to feel you're going too far and dotting the eyes, and that's when I put in that red hand of God saying, stop. So this is a generalization to be sure, but in the mid to late 50s, many of the paintings could be called hectic. They explode with energy and impulsive things still can happen in them as you just heard in the case of Eden. In retrospect, they're utterly experiential. They are urban and they reflect the backdrop and hubbub of the city where they were created. They have a, a sense of place and Frankenthaler herself said in 1957, if I'm forced to associate, I think of my pictures as explosive landscapes, worlds and distances held on a flat surface. In the early 1960s, particularly in the Provincetown paintings, the canvases appear to be more measured. Frankenthaler's moved away from the turbulence of abstract expressionism. She's more drawn to a classical restraint and she's more aligned with the atmospheric pictures of Kenneth Nolan and Morris Lewis, who, as I said, became color field painters after they saw and studied mountains and seas. And these 1960s canvases that refer to Provincetown are less episodic, but equally experiential. Among other things, in 1963, Frankenthaler and Motherwell moved into a house on 631 Commercial Street that was directly on the water and she could stare at the expanse of the bay. Now, as opposed to restless surfaces full of splashes and swirls of brushstrokes, we have expansive masses of color, formations of color that drift and puddle across the canvas, colors that fold in and around each other. The Provincetown paintings slow down the eye. They have a serenity and a resolve that partake of the surroundings in which they were created. And perhaps an even stronger reason that the work is different in comparison to that of the 1950s is that in 1962, Frankenthaler began uh, working with acrylic paints such as Magna, which dried more quickly and thus uh, presented different challenges. She went back and forth between oil and acrylic between 1962 and 1964 as she learned how to manipulate acrylics to her satisfaction, which is why I think these are so controlled. She did not think she had complete command of the medium yet, which she confirms in several interviews about the trouble she was having in making the paint do what she wanted after she first took it up. Now witness the magisterial confidence on display in both of these late 1960s acrylics in which she handles both geometric and open flowing forms with equal aplomb. 
Now, in paintings like Low Tide in the Bay, which you just saw, uh, Frankenthaler is you know, generalizing and extrapolating from her emotions, although, although the place or environment she's in as well, as, what, as well as what's caught her eye at, in the moment, always play a part as she explains about what can be baked into a painting. And by environment, I don't just mean the external world, but the interior world of the studio and the artist's consciousness. So she's ultimately trying to de uh, define a synthesis of what one conceives or preconceives, and then what happens on the way during the creative process. Uh, next excerpt, excerpt 11, please. It's the look of a room or a mood or an idea about geometry. All those thoughts and then canceling all the thoughts and dreams and conscious thoughts out and experience and letting it just spontaneously come. Or predetermining something and having it turn out somewhat like that but maybe totally different in the end and letting the picture come to you. I always say that it's, the artist has to have a dialogue with the canvas surface so that you're telling it something and then it's telling you something back. And in the end, you have the last word. Now, Regarding interior landscape, we'll hear Frankenthaler talking about the tightrope that she always walks between an improvisation and the need to maintain discipline in handling the paint as it moves across the canvas after she pours and pushes it. Frankenthaler's titles aren't always necessarily literal, but we do see the image of an enclosure here and the shaping of an interior space. Excerpt 12, please. I think the center came first, the upper yeah. first, yeah. and the two sides, again the symmetry <laughs> that is not. I think the blue vertical, which I painted very painstakingly, because I remember being on my knees with this very fine brush at the edges, so that it was a discipline of both geometry and accident. I never liked the look of a planned accident, but filling in some of this was that challenge. And then the rest just sort of happened as it happened. The, the bleeding of what here is a sort of army green against a darker green, against a lighter green. It's a whole play of, of inner greens. Now I want to play an excerpt from an oral history that's absolutely unique, and it was recorded in Provincetown. Frankenthaler was interviewed there by a painter named Carl Fortest in August 1963. Fortest was compiling an oral history of a number of American artists for Boston University. And when speaking to him, she was at home, she was relaxed, and he was an artist, and evidently he had gained her trust. To my knowledge, this is the one on the record comment about being married to another painter, a famous and established painter with a gravitas of his own, 
to remind you, she was married to Robert Motherwell for 13 years from 1958 to 1971. Now characteristically, she analyzes the situation as being artist to artist as opposed to, she thought, divulging anything too personal, but it's enlightening nonetheless. And I play it because it's distinctive and because the um, remark that was captured and survived only through the means of an oral history project. Uh, it's also the longest excerpt that I'm presenting, just over two minutes, which can seem like an eternity when you're listening, so bear with this. Uh, excerpt 13, please. I think what makes both the marriage and the painting work well is that I feel I was married when I was, well, 29, that I was queer about my identity in many ways. And it wasn't as if I were 19 and starting out and not sure about what a woman is or what a painter is or if I should take it seriously or what my style would be. Now, when I was married, I'd already, as I say, knew what I was about pretty much. I don't mean that I wasn't very naive, but in other words, I had a painting style. I'd had many one-man shows. I had a name, if that's what you want to call it, of my own. I married a man who, Robert Motherwell, who is had his own history, in a sense, of another generation, though we're not that far apart in age, his group in the 40s in New York was called really the first generation of the New York school, whereas I was, I started out with in a gallery in the early 50s, I think it was 50, 51, with Larry Rivers and Grace Hardigan and Robert Goodenow. So it, it wasn't, in one sense it was there was a real connection. In another, it's very separate. And I think it is difficult, but I think any two people living together have problems. And that two painters, if they don't know who they are or where they want to go to an extreme, it presents additional problems. On the contrary, it's additional sympathy and support and understanding. Uh, I have to comment that what I find revealing about this supposedly less than intimate vision of the partnership of two artists of, uh, of strong known identities is the hypothesizing about how problematic it all would have been if she had been starting out at 19 not knowing what a woman is or what a painter was or if she should take her art seriously or what her style was. Uh, now in that, Frankenthaler is describing the exact stage of her life she was inhabiting when uh, she met Clement Greenberg you know, at the age of 20. Now, she didn't marry Greenberg, and she certainly benefited from knowing him, but nonetheless, her theorizing is clearly rooted in lived experience. Now, as you've learned from this show, um, Motherwell and Frankenthaler were both very cosmopolitan, erudite people, and they were both highly aware of the history of art, and it was something that mattered enormously to them. Motherwell astutely wrote, this is my favorite quote from him, I always quote it, um, every intelligent painter carries the whole culture of modern painting in his head. It is his real subject of which everything he paints is both an homage and a critique. 
by word and example. Frankenthaler believed that too, and she would agree, have agreed with this 100%, and it was part of what bonded them for quite a while. She was a devotee and understood, as John Graham once said, Hi, Alicia. That, as Graham once said, if there's no tradition, there's no revolution. She never wanted to rebel against tradition, just extend it and shape it to let her in. And in her words, excerpt 14, please. Looking at my past, I probably was and am a rebel, but I'm also historically very square, and I don't mean just in attitude or in rhythm of life, but in being a traditionalist and a classicist, very much a classicist. But I think I'm a rebel without having felt rebellious. And I think that's true of most artists I esteem, that they're just doing what they have to do, and it comes out the way it has to be. And take it or leave it, and because they have that truth and passion, very often other people like it too. Jean Barrow, whom I quoted before, wrote an article titled The Achievement of Helen Frankenthaler in 1967. He never quite isolated what he thought that that achievement was, but I can offer a one-word guess. Indispensability, American art wouldn't have been the same without her. Thank you. Does anyone have any questions? Did she paint until her death? Was she painting? She painted till about 2003, and then she made some prints, but she did have some debilitating physical problems in which she could no longer really paint big. You know, she did some small things, but the, the kind of physical effort this made became impossible after about 2003. And I don't know if you've ever seen these enormous prints that she made. Actually, there's a wonderful prints show that's going to open in September at the Princeton University Art Museum, which I recommend highly. But, you know, she always worked at this, uh, this you know, big scale. And so it just, you know, as she got older, it got more difficult. But uh, So my, my question was going to be, you stopped at 67, and she then continued painting for several decades. How would you characterize her work evolving? Well, that really, I, I really would like to keep the focus of that on, on the paintings of the 50s and 60s and the okay. subject of the, the museum, but she did all sorts of very complex uh, abstraction. Some of those Provincetown ones are kind of seen simple or basic, and you know she she had a more and more complex tutorial achievement in terms of colors and shapes and other things like that. It's, it's pretty hard to discuss it without any images because indeed she was very prolific. Unfortunately, I was kind of hoping that. I wouldn't one, of her, one of Helen's nephews would show up, and then we could ask, we could make him answer. <laughs> anyway. Um, well, thank you. Mm -hmm. Hi. Thank you, Avis. That was wonderful. Um, how much detective work did you do? Were most of these interviews uh, at the archives or at the foundation, or did you no, search at them the, out? 
At the Archives of American Art, there is one that Barbara Rose conducted, which, by the way, is online and you can download. I didn't, I didn't use that. Well, I, all of the ones, other than Fred Eisenman, all, uh, the Leslie, all, I conducted all of the interviews that weren't with Helen, except, um, I, I, although I actually interviewed Fred Eisenman. This was something he had said earlier. This was at a memorial for Helen. But I... Uh, with the help of Sarah Hogg, the archivist, is that I looked, I think I looked through about the hundred or so interviews and I tried to select one and then I would list, I mean, I was kind of going nuts. It was that I was listening to, you know, the two hour, you know, she'd be some university or museum and speak for an hour and a half and I kept listening and looking, you know, for the two minute, each of these is from a different occasion from the, you know, the two minute cut that, you know, you, one could use. So, it was just, you know, I don't know. I just kept searching till I found. Also, the other thing was I really, it was like going down the, the internet rabbit hole. I just got interested in listening to what she had to say. So it was something, you know, I think I'll spend an hour doing this and listening to it. So it was kind of like listening to the radio. So I don't know how much detective work. It was just slogging. <laughs> well, thank you. This was a tremendous, tremendous afternoon and learning more about Frankenthaler every minute in this. So thank you. Thank you.